It's good to see you this morning. Now that we have uh, turned to 1 John, you can go backwards and find the Gospel of John. And as you do that, you can this week find John 15. We come into the 15th chapter in our study of this Gospel. And when you turn there, you'll find what is really quite a famous passage at this point. The text where Jesus speaks to us about the vine and the vine dresser and the branches. It's not easy to rank Jesus' sayings to us. It might even be dangerous to try to do so. But you could make the case that this would be likely among the top, I would say maybe three most significant pictures, images, that Christ gave as he taught the disciples. Jesus as the vine, the Father as the vine dresser, and we the branches. This whole morning we'll be spent thinking about vines and branches, but speaking of vines and branches, you'll also notice as we read in just a moment, the first 11 verses, that this is a picture with details that are easy to trip over. And that's because in this illustration that assures us of God's work in us and of his love for his people, an illustration that speaks to those things, we're often surprised to find conditions attached here. So we'll have verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and verse 6 throws into the fire. And there's verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. These are things that can be difficult to understand and to apply rightly. So this morning, one task that we have is to understand those conditional statements that we find in a context like this. And we'll seek to do that, but I would have us begin by stating from the outset the overarching message that we're receiving from our Lord this morning in what we're going to read. And it is that God is indeed faithful to grow his children. And that the growth that he brings is growth that comes to us only through our abiding in Christ. And so what we have here as a result this morning is that we're given cause for great confidence as those who are united to Christ by faith. We're given here cause for tremendous confidence in our lives while at the same time being forbidden from living lives of presumption. What would it look like to live a presumptive life? And this is an important question for us this morning and what we're going to see. A, a life of presumption would be a life lived casually as regards things like what I do, where I spend my efforts, uh, how I regard the commands of Scripture as they come to me. A presumptive life would be lived with little to no display of seriousness in fighting sin. Uh, A life lived with no deliberateness to lean hard on Christ's work in my place and all of the implications of that. The Christian life is a life lived out of confidence in God's ability to guard his children. But a confident life that does not stem from or produce presumption. And that is very much a balance that we are called to as Christians in our lives. And it's that balance that is so much a part of what our Lord says to us this morning. 
So with that in mind, let's hear what we're going to be seeing. I'll be reading John 15, verses 1 to 11 from the English Standard Version. And if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? John 15, starting in verse 1, and Jesus continues in this way. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. What ties these verses together this morning is Jesus' call to us as his disciples to abide in him. You heard that several times in what we read. And this morning, it's that singular message, that singular call to abide in our Savior that we will consider and we'll hear it in the two parts that he gives it to us. So we'll hear this morning his call that we abide in his life. It's the call that he gives using the metaphor of the vine in verses 1 to 8. Abide in his life. Secondly, we'll hear the call to abide in his love. That'll be verses 9 and 10. You can, get, you can guess based on that arrangement, we'll spend the majority of our time this morning on the first of those two points, but we'll find that they are absolutely inseparable with each other. First, life. Abide in his life. And the important thing for us to recognize here is that we're seeing Jesus work in the first eight verses here. We're seeing him work with a metaphor. And anyone who has ever read an Amelia Bedelia book knows the potential pitfalls that come with figures of speech. Uh, in our church newsletter last week, I mentioned J.C. Ryle's very helpful reminder on this text. And when he refers to this vine and the branches, he calls it a parable. Uh, and this is what he said there, what he cautioned us with. He said, the general lesson of each parable is the main thing to be noticed. The minor details must not be strained and pressed to an excess in order to extract a meaning from them. Listen to this. I think he's right here. 
He says, the mistakes into which Christians have fallen by neglecting this rule are neither few nor small. It's important to grab hold of the actual point of the metaphor here. And this morning, it's this. It's that God is committed to the growth of his children. And the singular vessel through which that growth comes to us is union with Christ. Jesus, the vine. He doesn't just have in him the life that we need. He himself is the life that we need. Indeed, that we must have. His father, the vine dresser. Talk about that quite a bit this morning. It's terribly significant that we recognize that he is the one who is at work producing in us this growth. He is the vine dresser. I am not my vine dresser. It's him in this picture. We, the branches. Now, what's significant there is it helps us to be very clear. What is Jesus teaching about in this, in this piece of imagery? He's talking about our growth. That is what's at issue here. We are the branches. We are the ones in this picture that growth is coming from. That's what this metaphor is concerned with, or coming to, rather. So the questions for us are questions like, what is it like to be the branches in this scenario and for growth then to come in us? How does that happen? How does it succeed? If I know how God has set this up that I might grow, then I know what I am to pursue in my life. I don't know how he set this up. I don't know what I'm supposed to be pursuing. You can see why this image is so terribly important for us as Christians seeking to live out a Christian life and to be obedient and submissive to God's word. And as we're thinking about this first piece here, the call to abide in his life, like the branch abides in the vine, there are four things I would point out as we're trying to understand this metaphor and the details that he gives us here. Four things. The first is this. We need to compare on purpose verse 3 and verse 4 in order to better understand the scope of this metaphor. Look at verse 3. Notice what he brings up there and notice the distinction that it creates with the rest of this picture. He says in verse 3, Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. If you've been with us in this study, that should be vaguely familiar to you. You might remember back to John 13, 10, he said something extremely similar there. He has just washed the disciples' feet in John 13, and he said to them this. He said, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Judas is still in the room. He's speaking there about Judas. But you remember perhaps what we talked about there, that this is describing to us the reality in our lives, that it's the word of Christ given to us, received by us as he's given us eyes to see, ears to hear. We we believe on him and we are clean, it says. But we all understand it here. That doesn't mean that from that point to the point of my death, that there is nothing else for me to be doing. There is no other cleansing that is needed. And the promise is in that image of the foot washing, One of the things he's telling us there is that God is committed to being with us, guarding us, sanctifying us through our lives. Even though we have been washed, the moment we put our trust in Jesus Christ as our hope and as our Savior. 
So in other words, there is a once-for-all cleansing, and then God is at work in us in an ongoing way that extends out from that. So really, we're, we're hearing there about the daily pursuit of sanctification, aren't we? And our dependence on the Lord for that pursuit. And something very similar is going on here. But the point that we need to recognize is that it's in this clean status of verse 3 that we find things like forgiveness of sins, justification before the, the, uh, the throne of God, the legal adoption that is ours in Christ. Those things are in verse 3. This verse 3 cleansing, we could say, if we're thinking about our metaphor this morning, is we could say that is how the union was brought about. That's how it was that I came to be united to the life-giving vine. And so now then, verse 4, the command is to remain. That word abide is also commonly translated remain. Abide in me and I in you. Remain in me. This is a call to the pursuit of this relationship. It's a call to the acknowledgement of this relationship and the protection of this relationship. It's not altogether different from what will be phrased down in verse 9 as abiding in his love. And we could even unabashedly jump ahead of ourselves this morning by peeking down at verse 10, where he tells us how we go about abiding like this. He says there, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. But that is getting ahead of us, looking down at the love statements of 9 and 10. Here in the first eight verses, the exhortation that Christ is giving with this vine imagery is making a related but more specific point than that. It's a point about the results of our being joined to Christ. I mean, what is it he's talking about here? He's talking about fruit, isn't he? The fruit that comes as a result of our being joined to Christ. In other words, the way that life ever manifests itself in a believer. So here the call to abide in order to bear fruit is the call to an awareness, and therefore a life lived out of that awareness, an awareness of our dependency upon him. I am in fact connected to him, and it is only because of that that any growth in these ways, in these life-expressing ways, is going to come from me. I must be aware that that's the necessary uh, source of that growth. I must be thankful. I must pursue. I must guard. And that choice to abide will show itself in our living. It shows itself For example, as I develop habits that regularly bring me on my knees before my Father. Why would I do that? I would do that as a result of a deep awareness that Jesus is the vine and the Father is the vine vine dresser. Such a posture shows itself as I fear the things. I mean, come to fear the things that would lead me to wander from him, from He who is the vine dresser, the one whose work in me is required if I am going to grow instead of wither. I would actually have an opinion about the things in my life that would lead me to wander from him. It would concern me. These are the sorts of ways that this this commitment to abide would manifest itself in our lives. 
And so it's the first thing for us to notice here, that given verse 3, what's being described in the vine and branches metaphor is our growth as Christians, our sanctification. It's simply making the point that there are no true Christians without some measure of fruit. But that leads right to the second thing that we need to notice regarding this metaphor, and it's, it's really a defining the limits of the metaphor. Every metaphor has limits, doesn't it? We need to be clear here, secondly, what is and what is not being said in verse 2. This is the second thing for us to be uh, very clear on. Nothing at all is being said here about the loss of somebody's salvation. Instead, what's being made clear is what we've just described, that every Christian is given a measure of growth. I think it's very important to notice, verse 2 doesn't say, every branch in me that does not bear enough fruit, he takes away. Sometimes we might read it that way. That's not what it says, is it? No, it says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit is taken away. The point he's making is simply that no wood belonging to Christ in this metaphor is dead wood. Everything that has been united to Christ has life at work. It can be confusing here because Jesus says, in me, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. But again, recognizing that he is working with a figure of speech, we have to let Jesus make use of a metaphor. This is the very same thing, for example, that we see in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. What's part of that picture? You have plants there that grow up for a time, but then die out. And you can tell in the way that he tells the story that the point of the metaphor isn't that appearance of growth. The point of the metaphor is the fact that they never bear any fruit. That's the point. It's not a statement about gaining and then losing salvation. It's only a statement about the appearance of life that winds up having been nothing more than appearance. So the point there and here is we need to let Jesus make one point at a time. And he's expecting us to hear as he gives us these, these teachings, he's expecting us to hear him in concert with all of what he has said. So just as one example of many that we could bring up, even in what we've seen in John's gospel, John 6, 39, he said emphatically, the will of him who sent me is that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Now think of why that's so significant to this. What's the main point of his statement there? The main point of his statement there is the question of are we secure in him or not? Are there those who have been given to Christ by the Father who should worry that they might be lost? That's the point there. And what he says is, the will of him who sent me is that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. His point here concerns our growth. And D.A. Carson is very helpful in this. He, he argues that we struggle with this only if we are trying to squeeze this imagery unfairly. I'll share with you what he said. I found it helpful. That's why I bring it up here. He said, the transparent purpose of the verse is to insist that there are no true Christians without some measure of fruit. Fruitfulness is an infallible mark of true Christianity. The alternative is dead wood. 
And the exigencies of the vine metaphor make it necessary that such wood be connected to the vine. He says, dead branches from some other tree lying around in the vineyard dirt could scarcely make the point. These have no life in them. They have never borne fruit, or else they would have been pruned, not cut off. This is very important for us to see as we're understanding what Christ is telling us here. That's number two. The third thing for us to notice, I would say, is yet another limitation of the metaphor. What's the difference between you and me and a branch in a vine in a, in a vineyard? Are there any differences whatsoever in reality between you and a branch that might mean that there's limits to the metaphor here? Do the branches in the metaphor have a sin nature as Christians do? Do the, do the branches in the vine have individual wills as Christians do? If you're struggling, the answer is no, they do not. They do not have those things. Do you see my point here? He's describing something about our growth that is indeed tied to conditions in our lives. We don't all grow at the same rate as each other. Nor do we grow at the same rate in every season of our own lives. And very often, that is because of what? That's because of sin present and at work in my life. When we acknowledge the fact that there are, there are differences in the extent and the range of growth as a result, we're not talking about periods in life in which salvation has been lost to us and must be regained by us as if we ever gained it ourselves in the first place. We are acknowledging the reality that we do, in fact, wander at times. But here's the point in the image. The fact that we wander should matter to us. Because guess what? It impacts the quality of our lives in this world. It does not only dishonor our God and Father. If it only did that, that would be enough reason to hate and to desperately fight against but what Jesus is giving us in this, in this image are some very practical daily realities. My wandering from the one to whom I owe all the growth in my life is a thing to be concerned with. Our church's youth just recently heard this in, in 2 Peter. We're going through 2 Peter. And in 2 Peter 1.5, we are instructed to diligently pursue a growth in things like, he says, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, kindness. And then Peter writes this in verse 8 there. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You hear what he's saying there? And do you, do you see how strongly this would call us away from presumptuous lives as Christians? My friends, that suggests to you it's common, and maybe you are in this place right now. It's common to find Christians who have learned that Christ, once we have come to him and he has received us, they've learned that Christ will never let them go, that they will be forever safe in his arms, which glory to God, that is true. But that's all they've learned on the subject. And as a result, they begin to live lives thinking that that means that they're just generally 
always going to be, their lives that is, will always be as good uh, as they would or could be. And what we're hearing in places like these is that I and the people who I love will suffer in this life as I grow complacent about the fight to remain, to abide in the life of Christ. There is great reason as Christians for confidence. There's every reason for confidence. But complacency, complacency and presumptive living can and will be devastating. The fourth and final observation about the vine and the branches here is for us to really appreciate what's being said about signs of life. It's a good way to describe the fruit here, signs of life. The metaphor shows plainly, it seems to me, that it's worthy of our watchfulness. It's worthy of our rejoicing when we see evidence of the life of Christ in us. So I would ask you this morning, when you find the fruit of the Spirit showing up in places, in seasons, in conditions, where it had been sparse before, when you find that in your life, do you rejoice? Is it a meaningful thing to see that God is truly at work growing you? How much is that idea even on your radar? Are you on the lookout to find the evidence of God's work in you by his spirit? And let me just quickly remind you what the Bible says it is that we're looking for in this way. Galatians 5 names what it calls the fruit of the spirit, which is exactly the sort of fruit that Jesus is commending to us here. We read Galatians 5.22. Just be reminded of this list. You don't have to turn there. The fruit of the spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. As you find those things in you, First of all, are you even looking for them? Have you gotten so distracted with life that you've forgotten? Do you draw encouragement from those things in your life that are being brought to you through the vine of Christ only by the work of the Father? It is his fruit. And therefore, it's a display of the grace of God in your life. It should be meaningful to us. If you find a $20 bill on the sidewalk, you are excited, right? This is a thing worthy of great comfort and excitement. But we get even more about this here, even more about these signs of life. Our Lord tells us that when when fruit is being born out in a branch, what does God do according to verse 2? He prunes the branch. I remember hearing a pastor say once years ago, he said, I'm not exactly sure what that means, but it doesn't sound good. He prunes the branch. You cannot possibly think that's describing something painless. Stripping off unproductive growth. Breaking it in order to grow it. Sounds like 
hunting down the idols of my heart, breaking them, forcing me to watch the things that I have put hope in, forcing me to watch them prove themselves to be empty and unable to cash in on their promises. That hurts. It sounds like forcing us to experience the emptiness of the world's promises that we're holding on to, sometimes that we've been holding on to for years. I mean, that's a, that's a description of something in us dying so that energy may go somewhere else. It sounds like some hard times is what it sounds like. And Jesus says that the Father does this so that the branch may bear more fruit. My friends, this is why we as believers, those who are united to Christ by faith, this is why it's so important that we recognize the Father as the vine dresser of my life and not me as the vine dresser of my life. The growth is His. God is working actively. Think of the claim that it's making about yesterday for you, tomorrow for you. God is actively working. I mean, he's causing events to transpire in your life. There is a mind behind the way that things are turning out for you. He has set up the details already of your day tomorrow that the life of Christ may increase in you. That is what life means in this metaphor, right? It's why Jesus is the vine. It's only his life that is coming to us and bringing that growth. We're talking about expressions of true life, everlasting spiritual life. We're not talking about manifestations of maybe how we would think of life or growth. We're not talking about output from my life that I deem useful or find most fulfilling. That is not the thing that we're speaking about here. God is not like us. God is not a product of our age. And therefore, God is not working in us to the great end of maximizing my self-fulfillment. That's not what he's doing in me. He's preparing me. He's preparing me for joyful presence in his Joyful life in his presence forever. He's making you fit for heaven. And the call upon our lives here in verses 1 to 8 is that we would cling to the life-giving vine that God has given us to and given to us. That we would cling to our Savior. That we would be desperate to remain in him. kind of life he's calling us to here is the life that would pray in our songs, Jesus, draw me ever nearer, and would rejoice in our songs about love that will not let us go. And so there is, in this opening metaphor, both a command and a promise. We need to see them both, and we'd better get them straight. The command is not to bear fruit. The command is to abide in Christ. The bearing of fruit, that would be the promise that we receive here. That comes from the command. 
Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It all makes sense and it all calls us to a life of confidence, but far from a life of presumptive living, a life that is regularly, eagerly dependent, needy before our Lord, who brings us all good things. Now, the second thing that we find here in this text, which is very much related to that, is verses 9 and 10. It's the call to abide in his love. Look at what's said at the beginning of verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Maybe you're already feeling there the tension that I described at the beginning with an if statement like that. But let's start by just noticing what a powerful thing it is that he starts with here, likening his love for us to the love with which the Father has loved him. He does it in both of the verses. In fact, I think that's the key to understanding his point here is to notice that he repeats it again in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is not the first or the second time we've seen our Lord teach us like this, is it? But how are we to understand it? The if statement in verse 10 clearly sets obedience as some kind of a condition for what he calls abiding in his love. There is love at stake in what's being said here. And the question is, how on earth can we say a thing like that? We are a people who understand God's sovereign seeing through to the end of his, of his commands and of his plans. Is not God's love unconditional? Do we not affirm God's electing love of his people to be an unconditional thing? Yes, we do. We very much do. When we take that and begin to wrestle here, then the problem that we're wrestling with is the problem that God's word does not speak of his love in a one-sided way. There are many ways in which God's love is described. And that that word love, and even the concept of his love, is used in the text of Scripture. We made reference a number of weeks ago to a very helpful and very small book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And this is the reason for the title, because his, much of his point that he's making there is, notice the variety of ways that God's love is spoken of, and that, uh, that we are taught in reference to this. He gives five different senses of God's love as it's described in Scripture. I'll just quickly describe three of them for our purposes here. I think it's helpful to see these side by side. Now, one way that God's love is described in the Bible is his, what we could call his providential love for all that he has made. So Psalm 145.9 says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Or you think of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 45. What's the point he's making here about God's love? He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, so that you may look like 
your father. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The entire point of what he's saying there is that as we love our enemies and pray for our persecutors, we are exhibiting a love that God exhibits in a providential, general way to his entire creation. That's one way that his love is spoken of. Another way that his love is spoken of is to speak of God's particular, effective, selecting love toward his people. So there are a number of statements in Scripture about God's love coming out that do not apply to every man, woman, and child. They apply uniquely to his people. Just consider, for example, Romans 8, which makes uh, that particular context even very clear and gives us some strong statements of unconditional love. Inevitable love. Romans 8, 31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. And then he asked the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he scratches his head and he gets busy compiling this exhaustive list of potentials. And he says, none of them. The answer is, no one and nothing can separate from the love of God in Christ. That's a statement, a very comprehensive statement about a particular love God has for his people. Now, the third and final way that I'll mention here, I mentioned because we're finding it in our text this morning. The Bible also describes God's love in another sense. It describes his love as directed toward his own people in a provisional or conditional way, conditioned on obedience. None of these descriptions of God's love trump or render null the others. So in this sense, we find, for example, in Jude, in verse 21, he tells his believing audience there, keep yourselves in the love of God. And he says to the same sense here in verses 9 and 10, abide in my love, remain in my love. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. My friends, that's clearly, I hope you can see, not an example of God's love by which the rain falls on the just and the unjust. You you cannot, it's pretty hard to escape that love. This is not his eternal electing love. We just saw from Romans that one does not walk away from that either. This is not a description of those things. Instead, it's it's a description of a truth that we know exists in any relationship. I would share one author's illustration that makes the point in a way that I think we can relate to, either as parents or as former children. We've all been that, or current children. One man put it this way. He said, to draw a feeble analogy, although there is a sense in which my love for my children is immutable, so help me God, regardless of what they do, there is another sense in which they know well enough that they must remain in my love. If for no good reason my teenagers do not get home by the time I have prescribed, 
the least they will experience is a bawling out, and they may come under some restrictive sanctions. There is no use reminding them that I am doing this because I love them. That is true. But the manifestation of my love for them when I ground them on the one hand, or when I take them out for a meal or take my son fishing on the other, are rather, two, are rather different in the two cases. Only the latter will feel much more like remaining in my love than falling under my wrath. What exactly is our Lord describing to us here in verses 9 and 10? He's encouraging us with yet another reason to pursue faithful, non-presumptuous lives. And that reason is because my relationship with my Heavenly Father is impacted. As I choose to walk near to Him or to stray from Him, it's impacted by obedience or disobedience. Listen, my status as his child is not affected by an act of disobedience, but he does call me to obey. And while he's abundantly patient and gentle, he is no pushover parent who fails his child. And Hebrews 12, 6 has told me that he disciplines every child whom he loves. And then five verses later, he assures me that it won't be pleasant. It'll be painful. He says that's what discipline is. All discipline is painful at the time. But later, for those who are trained by it, it yields the peaceful what? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. So what he's giving his disciples here, my friends, what he's giving you and me here this morning is incredibly practical, isn't it? He has now gotten all the way down to the matters of individual daily obedience and why it's in our best interest that we cultivate a life of obedience. Remember, he's preparing them and us for this time that we're living in where he has left physically. He has not yet returned physically. We're living our lives out without his physical presence right before us. And he is preparing us for how to live. And so good is he as a teacher and so kind is he as one who loves us. He's not just giving us the how, he's giving us the why. And he's being very convincing. I don't know that the disciples in their context would have been shocked by what we're hearing here, by these statements of condition, these statements of needing to obey so as to remain in this, uh, this, this what would we call it, positive uh, relationship, this, this place of nearness instead of estrangement. I don't know that the disciples would have been shocked by that, but I'll tell you, we have lived for so long now in such a, what's called an antinomian atmosphere, that it can actually surprise us to hear someone say that our obedience will make a difference as to the quality of my life as a Christian. We are doing our own children eternal good when we teach our kids those connections, aren't we? And when we live it out as well, we're doing them eternal good. Do we think our Heavenly Father does less? He does not. He loves us. He is committed to us. And the one who loves us and is committed to us has told us through His Son, pursue vibrant, intentional, fearful even, nearness to Christ. If you would grow. If you want to grow, 
and not languish and suffer the life of the languishing. Remain with me. Walk near to me. Know my commandments. Care to keep them. As you fail, run to me, not away from me. Run to me in confession, in mourning over sin. Be eager to receive my comfort. If you would feel my pleasure rather than my correction, this is the path that Christ leads us to follow. And the question we can end with could be the question, why is he telling us this? Verse 11 answers that question. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Leon Morris put it very well. He said, It is no cheerless, barren existence that Jesus plans for his people. But the joy of which he speaks comes only as they are wholehearted in their obedience to his commands. To be, I thought this was so wise, to be half-hearted is to get the worst of both worlds. Have you experienced that? My friends, the one who calls himself our father, if we have put our trust in Christ for life, the one who is our father is the one who has made this planet. He has made everything to function as it functions. We cannot run from the sorts of proverbial principles and consequences that we find in the book of Proverbs. This is, the, this is our Father's world. And our Father speaks to us here who knows us and who knows this place. And he would lead us in paths that would be full of his blessing, full of his fruit in our lives. This matters to us. It's our joy that is at stake. This is what Jesus says. He has come to give us life in abundance, John chapter 10. He has come to give us fullness of joy. And this morning, in intensely practical ways, he has just told us how we find that joy. The question is, do we believe him? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we tremble before your word. We do not tremble enough. Every Christian in this place senses that profoundly, that you have opened our eyes. We do see your glory in the face of your Son. And yet we continue to be, in profound ways, works in progress. God, we thank you for these these words that you have given us that remind us of just exactly the way it is that you are working in us in this life. It is no rote, mechanical process that is set up in an unthinking way. Our Father is leading us. God, forgive us for the ways and times that we forget that, that we ignore that, and we pray that you would use your word in us this morning to draw near to you, through your word. God, help us to live our lives with Jesus on the throne of it. Give us the energy, give us the sense of, of clarity and focus to cease in all efforts to dethrone him in our lives. We thank you, Lord, this morning for your son.
We pray in his name. Amen.